Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Dorian Lord Atkins said in 1887, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He said, great men are almost always bad men. Now, fortunately, that is not always the case. Here in chapter 8, David is about to experience Matthew 6.33. David has sought first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and as a result, all things are now going to be added to him. David has finally been given the power to rule. He started off with very little influence. If you remember, he was put out in the fields by his family to keep the sheep. But now David has become the king. He has been given power to rule all over, over all of Israel. Now, in Genesis 15, God had given Abraham a huge section of the land. And this chapter will show David fulfilling that promise to a large degree. Israel had lost territory to her enemies during the reign of King Saul. And now David is going to recapture some of that. But he also expanded Israel's borders and acquired land that hadn't been conquered in Joshua's day. God made this promise in a covenant with Abraham some 14 generations before David. To give you an idea of what God had given them, today the boundaries of of Israel would be about a quarter of Egypt, about a third of Saudi Arabia, about half of Iraq, and about 75% of Syria. This is why we must look at David's military activities in the light of God's covenants with Israel. The Lord had promised Israel the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, and the Lord used David to help fulfill that promise. Of course, the problem with establishing God's kingdom is there are enemies that come along with that. And in David's case, there were enemies in all directions. However, the Lord gave David victory over them all. It was truly remarkable. This is a fairly technical chapter, but there are still plenty of things we can draw from it and implement into our lives. Look at verse 1 with me. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. Notice that it was after the rest that David was given in chapter 7 that he now leaves the place of communion, he now leaves the place of blessing, And he now goes on the offensive. No longer is he fighting off the Philistines. He is in New Testament language storming the gates of hell. In other words, he wasn't content to just kick back and and relax like the battles were all over. You know, like that, I think there comes a time in our Christian walk where we realize how good and gracious that God has been to us. And that causes us to say, I'm going to start moving out and start aggressively pursuing holiness and shunning the flesh. 
The opening words of verse 1 after this should not be taken as strictly being chronological. This chapter summarizes the victories of the army of Israel over their enemies. And these events most likely occur between chapters 6 and 7. Chapter 8 is simply a summation of all of these battles. The first enemy we're going to look at are the Philistines. Now the Philistines occupied much of the coastal area to the Israel's heartland. The Philistines were the traditional enemies of the Jews and seized every opportunity that they had in order to attack them. In chapter 21, when we come to it, there are at least four different Philistine campaigns that are going to be mentioned. They were as ethnically different from the Israelites as were the Egyptians and the Canaanites. The Philistines come to prominence in biblical history in the days of the judges. By the time of Samson, they had become Israel's most persistent problem. Now it's interesting that the last reference of the Philistines being subdued was in 1 Samuel chapter 7 when Samuel had subdued them. But since then, the Philistines have been anything but subdued. Only under King David will they again be put in their place. David completed the work he had begun years earlier when as a boy he had killed Goliath. I think that teaches us that there are certain sins in our lives that are harder to be put under subjection than others. The Bible calls those besetting sins. There are Christians who have been purchased by Christ, but there is still a hook in their sinful flesh. Now why would God allow that? Why not just give us victory in every area of our lives the moment that we get saved? Well, I'm not certain, but I think one reason may be it's often our weaknesses that keep us closer to the Lord. Because it is in our failures oftentimes that we realize our need for the grace of God. Let me give you an example. Back in Exodus 23, Israel was having trouble with the Hivites. Listen to how the Lord is going to deliver them. The Lord says, I will send hornets ahead of you that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. Little by little. My friends, sometimes that's how the Lord does things in our lives, little by little. We may wish it would happen all at once, but we need to remember that God's ways are always best. Verse 2, please. He defeated Moab and measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. He measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. The next enemy from the east was the Moabites. Now the Moabites play a very different role in biblical history from the Philistines. They were descendants of Moab, a son of Abraham's nephew, Lot. The Moabites were therefore relatively close kinsmen to the Israelites. However, the Moabites had consistently expressed hostility to the Israelites. In the days of Moses on their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, the Israel, Israelites had sought safe passage through the land of the Moabite territory, but they were refused. 
This was an act that was not forgotten. Not only that, Moab's king Balak unsuccessfully attempted to have Israel cursed by the prophet Balaam. But contrary to Balak's plan, Balaam prophesied the defeat of Moab. Listen to his words concerning the Moabites. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Well, here in chapter 8, we learn that this star or scepter was initially David, and it was also a future fulfillment of Christ himself. Earlier, Moab had been friendly to David because they thought that he was Saul's enemy. And David had been related to the Moabites through his great-grandmother, Ruth. But because the Moabites had hired Balaam, the prophet to curse Israel, and then led Moab in seducing the men of Israel, the Lord declared war on Moab. And David was only continuing this crusade. Okay, but what about the deal of David lining men up and killing two-thirds of them? Well, this is difficult. David executed fully two-thirds of the captured Moabites, strangely measured out by a line. When we read of such terrible violence, especially in the Old Testament, we need to respond carefully to it. Our task as Bible students is to learn from the text of Scripture, not to make our own independent moral judgments of what we find there. John Calvin captures the tone of the text where he writes, The stringency which David exercised against the Moabites ought not to be considered cruelty, but to be the just judgment of God, since they had abused his long patience and had mocked him. What he is saying is, rather than mounting our moral high horse and condemning David, we should recognize that the righteous judgment of God includes judgment on all those who are in rebellion against him. Now in his mercy, that judgment may be held back for a long time, given the opportunity for repentance. But as was the case with the Moabites, the day will come when God will judge the world in righteousness. That reminds us that we should not abuse the patience of God by failing to heed the warnings of the gospel concerning the righteous judgment that is to come. What happened to the Moabites should serve as such a warning. Whenever we read of such things that we do not understand, especially in the Old Testament, I think we would be very wise to follow the example of Job who after questioning God's dealings towards him came to this very sound conclusion at the end. He said, Therefore I have uttered things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, things I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. A good rule in life is to remember that there is a God and we are not him. Write that down. That's brilliant. Remember, you heard it here first. Verse 3. And David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, <coughs> excuse me, as he went to restore his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for a hundred chariots. Now Hadadezer was a king of Zobah. Ironically, his name means Hadad 
is my help. Now, Hadad was an ancient deity, a storm god whose name means the one who smashes. Ironically, he did not prove to be much help to the one who bore his name when he was confronted with King David. It goes without saying that choosing a god in life is of the utmost importance to us all. I remember when I was young, my brother-in-law had these two 12-inch high Buddha statues. Do you know what he used them for? They were the bookends that held up his Steely Dan and Pink Floyd record collection. And that's really all the power they had to begin with. Also notice verse 3 says, David went to, and here's the word, restore his rule at the river. David just didn't take new territory. He also recovered old territory that had been previously lost. And I think there's a principle there for all of us. I find that sometimes the Lord wants us to face old enemies. Sometimes, years later down the road, God will allow someone or something to be reintroduced into our lives to test us, to see if we will once again face that situation and be victorious, or will we fail the test? I think this is to show us where we truly are in certain areas of conflict. But why did David hamstring, hamstring the majority of the horses which would make them useless in battle? I think it's because in Deuteronomy 17, we were told that the kings were not to multiply wives or horses. You see, having battle-ready horses could cause the king to trust in his military instead of trusting in God. And David chose to follow the first injunction about the horses, but he completely ignores the second. And so David says, I'll tell you what, Lord, I hear what you're saying there, and so I won't multiply horses. Don't raise your hand, but isn't that just like us? In some areas we are doing well, but in other areas we can be disobedient. That's just like us. We specialize in certain things. Giving, got it down. Serving, you bet. Gossiping, well, define gossiping. All of us are specialists in certain areas, and we tend to talk about those areas. The real issue, however, is not what we talk about, but what we are silent about. Oftentimes, our silence indicates where the attention and correction really needs to be in each of our lives. Not only that, have you ever noticed how easy it is to be critical of others in their struggles while we are careful to excuse our own. To put it in the words of George Carlin, have you ever noticed that anybody driving slower than you is an idiot and anybody driving faster than you is a maniac? But what are we to make of David sparing enough horses for a hundred chariots? You see, Israel at that time didn't use chariots. In fact, David even wrote in Psalm 20 that to trust in chariots was understood by David himself to be contrary to trusting in the name of the Lord. In general terms, trusting in chariots was a sign of Israel's turning from trust in the Lord also. And eventually, Isaiah's condemnation of the apostate Israel includes these words, There is no end to their chariots. It seems reasonable then to be more than a little concerned about David saving enough horses for a hundred chariots. 
Was he intending to experiment with this strange military hardware? Is there a hint here that David's trust in the Lord was not perfect? Probably. But the wonderful thing is, is that God knew about David's weaknesses and his vulnerabilities. And we need to keep in mind that the best of men are men at best. God knew David thoroughly, and yet he preserved him still. Likewise, even in those areas that we struggle, God is faithful to us, and I'm so glad about that. Verse 5, please. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem. From Beda and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now, Aram there seems to be a term applied to a broad geographical area north and northeast of Israel covering Syria, Lebanon, and upper Mesopotamia. And these Arameans tried to come to Zobah's rescue, but instead they also were defeated. So that the whole area north of the Euphrates came under Israel's territory. This gave Israel important military installations and also control of the very valuable caravan routes that passed through that territory. But the irony is pointed here. We noted earlier that earlier that Hadadezer's name means the God Hadad is my help. But his false God had been no help to him, and the ones who came to help him also were unable to help. And so David struck them down in even greater numbers than he had taken from Hadadezer himself. Verse 9, please. Now when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. Notice that after hearing that David had defeated the army of Hadadezer, that Toy, the king of Hamoth, sent his son as a delegate to bless King David. This is a model of what the kings of the earth should do when faced with the Lord's anointed king. Listen to the words of the second psalm. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is what the king of Hamath did. It's not necessary to face God's king as an enemy. Those who do so will certainly be overthrown. But those who seek peace with him, as did Toy, will certainly find that peace. This psalm is an Old Testament picture of someone confessing that Jesus is Lord over all. And you know what? It does not matter whether a person believes that or not concerning its validity. If 
you were up a hundred floors on a skyscraper and decided to jump because you don't believe in the law of gravity guess what your belief in gravity does not determine its reality in the same way a person's disbelief in God and the judgment to come is not determined by their refusal to believe in it simply put we can either confess Jesus is Lord from the glories of heaven or from the torments of hell but be very sure one day everyone in this room will confess that Jesus is Lord in verse 12 we see that David also defeated the Amalekites a commission that his predecessor Saul had failed to fulfill from the days of Moses the Lord had declared war on Amalek and David was only continuing that crusade but one thing that really impresses me with David was his reaction when God told him that he would not be the one who would build the temple he didn't react as some people do by saying fine then I'm not going to do anything and just moped around the rest of his life thankfully David didn't attend Boone's Farm University where all you do is whine that came to me in prayer believe it or not <laughs> But some people are like, if I can't be up front, I'm not going to do anything. And preacher, you can say all you want to say, but in the words of that great old song, I shall not be, no, I shall not be moved. But David didn't pout or feel sorry for himself. He said, okay, I can't build the temple. But Lord, you didn't say I couldn't get all the supplies for the building of the temple. That sounds just like a kid, doesn't it? Confession time. I would tell my mother things like, you said to keep my hands off of the cookies. You didn't say I couldn't nudge it off a plate with my nose and eat it like a pig at a feeding trough. You didn't say that. That's kind of what's going on here. As an aside, such behavior will cause people to give you the moniker, mean little Billy. But here David brought all that spoil to Jerusalem and dedicated it to the Lord in order that it would eventually be used in the building of the temple. You see, even though David could not build the temple himself, he didn't pout, he didn't quit, he didn't get angry. He simply set to work gathering all the supplies for Solomon. Once again, I point this out because sometimes people say, if I can't be on the worship team, I'm not going to sing at all. If I can't teach the adults, I'm certainly not going to teach the children. If I can't be recognized or utilized in the way that I think that I should be, I just won't do anything. You know, when people say such things, they're just proving the point that they do not need to be doing those things because they're too immature and their service isn't unto the Lord. Now, David was used mightily because even with all of his faults and failures, and we're going to see a bunch of them as we make our way through 2 Samuel, he still served the Lord every and any way that he could. Likewise, we might not ever be an evangelist or write a book or preach a sermon or go to the mission field, but all of us in here can do what David did. We can work behind the scenes providing the supplies through intercession and prayer. 
It's funny, the temple is known com commonly as Solomon's temple, but in reality, in my opinion, it was the heart of David that built that temple, and I think he will be credited eternally for doing that. Verse 14, please. He put garrisons in Edom, and all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became servants to David, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadak, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary. Benaniah, we're going to call him, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. It appears that while Israel was attacking the Syrians and Arameans in the north, the Moabites attacked them from the south. But the Lord had given them a great victory in all of this. And though David and Joab were the ones that were the leaders in conquering this, it was the Lord who received the glory when David commemorated the victory in Psalm 60, where David wrote concerning this, concerning the Lord, Over Edom I have cast my shoe. Now, casting my shoe is a metaphorical expression that may have a dual meaning. One, that God claims Edom as his territory. And secondly, God treats Edom like a servant who would clean his master's shoes. It expresses the humiliation that God brought to the proud Edomites whom David conquered. But of all the nations mentioned in this chapter, the Edomites were the closest relatives of the Israelites. They were descendants of Jacob's brother, Esau. But despite these links of kinship, the Edomites had also refused to grant the Israelites safe passage through their land. Their severe act of unkindness was also remembered, and hostilities continued through the following years. Sometime later, once again, Balaam prophesied the victory now recorded in our chapter this morning, where he prophesied these words, Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemy shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. And so we see these nations, along with Edom, gather themselves against David. In verse 14, we also see that David has now subjugated Edom. Trivia question. Where else in scripture do we find an Edomite in alliance with a non-Jewish ruler? There was an account of a Gentile ruler and an Edomite coming together and becoming friends. Why? Because like in our account today, they took their stand against a Jewish king. It was a man named Herod and a man named Pilate. Listen to these words in Luke 23:12. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. So these two guys had been enemies, but they had one thing in common. They both refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the king. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Plus, now if you're ever on a game show and the topic is obscure Bible passages, I like some of your winnings. But let the Lord guide you on such matters. In verse 16, we know very little about Jehoshaphat or his position in David's government. 
The recorder is probably the officer who kept the records and advised the king as would a secretary of state today. We do know, however, that Jehoshaphat was very fond of jumping around a lot. As we close. It is fitting, therefore, to sum up the chapter, so David reigned over all Israel. His reign entailed victory over all those who posed his rule and threatened his people, and it also had peace with those who welcomed his rule, and the wealth of all these nations being turned to the service of the Lord rather than the glory of mankind who opposed the kingdom. And while this is certainly not a perfect kingdom, as we will certainly see, it did display in a preliminary anticipatory way the nature of God's kingdom and gives us a preview of what the kingdom of God will be like. It was a kingdom characterized by, here's the two words, justice and righteousness. Now justice and righteousness should probably not be understood as two different concepts, but a wonderful reality rightly described by the two words. It is justice that is righteous. He did justice and righteousness for all of his people. David's kingdom of justice and, right and righteousness was a remarkable phenomenon. His was an anticipation of the kingdom of Christ where the ultimate enemy is defeated and the wealth of the nations will be brought to New Jerusalem. We'll come back next week as we look at one of my absolute favorite stories in the Old Testament, that being Mephibosheth. We do thank you, Lord, that you are the king. And, Father, there's probably territory in every heart here that still needs to be conquered. I pray, Lord, that you would do that. You would help us to do our part in doing that also, knowing that you work with us. And the parts that we cannot do in our own strength, Lord, we trust your Holy Spirit to overcome. That's these things in Christ's name. Amen.